You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Um, Well, thank you so much for being here today. This is the fifth week of our seven-week series called What Jesus Said. And here's where we've been. Week one, we're in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, where he just upends morality and he talks about all these things so differently. Week two, we were in Matthew 10, where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, where he says, basically, if you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. Just these really tough words. And then the third week in this series, we're in John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then he says, hey, speaking of death, I'm the resurrection and the life. Last week, if you joined us, you heard Pastor Micah talk about how Jesus talks about people and the law and which one of these things is more important when it comes to God's heart and how do we navigate that. And here's the point, like if you've been following us the last four weeks or so, there's this building pressure, isn't there? We said it like this, that Jesus is not cute, he is not quaint, he is hardly ever cordial, but he is absolutely compelling. He's the one person in all of human history on whom you must have an opinion. He asks questions that demand a reply, prompt a response, and draw out a reaction. It is absolutely impossible to be ambivalent about Jesus. Here's why this is so important to me, um, just personally, is like I spent 11 years of my life on the fence. I spent 11 years acknowledging Jesus with my lips, with my church attendance, even my church participation, but my heart did not know what it meant to follow him. And um, if cultural trends and stories are right, that may be part of your story true, uh, too. I think there's a lot of that, especially just kind of in this area in our world. And uh, just to make my personal burden really clear is, um, you know, I would give anything if I could have those 11 years back. There's so much that I would do differently. And maybe you feel the same way about that part of your story, if that's you. And so for me, like as a pastor, um, pastoring a church that I kind of grew up in, there's this deep feeling, it's like very strong conviction in my heart to prevent that fence writing for anybody else. My deepest heart for you as your pastor is for you to know Christ and to love him more today than you did yesterday and to find that life is only ever lived to its fullest if Jesus is actually your shepherd. And so that's where we're going today. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I mean, we're called Christians, right? We're followers of Christ. And that sounds kind of basic, right? Like, oh, I'm a Christian. Of of, of course I am. But I think where we're going this morning um, might make you uncomfortable. And um, if I could borrow a phrase that I've often heard used to describe uh, good writing or good journalism, that Jesus has the strange way of afflicting the comfortable, but then comforting the afflicted. And so that's where we're heading this morning. Um, Let's get to it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, this random and anonymous question that came out of nowhere from the edges of a curious crowd and an unexpected answer that comes from this compelling rabbi named Jesus. So first, a little bit of context. So in this series so far, we've been bouncing around in uh, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different scenes. And so 
if you remember, these are four gospel accounts of Jesus's life, um, four biographers who are actually trying to prove a point about who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it, what is so important. And so this week, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke. So if you remember Matthew, if Matthew seems really intentional about focusing on Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and, and the Messiah, and John is a different gospel. John seems intent on showing us a Jesus who's the fulfillment of all of life's deepest questions. Luke, though, Luke shows us a Jesus that is this perfect man, this amazing leader, this compelling teacher. Um, Luke actually shows us more parables than the other three gospels. Interestingly, also in Luke, we see Jesus spending a lot of time with individuals, also social outcasts, um, more than the other Gospels. Luke also records um, Jesus' appeal to personal responsibility more than the other three Gospels, and I think you'll see that this morning. Luke presents us a picture of Jesus, and he shows us um, that Jesus wants to be this up-close and personal, unafraid, bold-teaching rabbi who always has time to stop and answer questions that come. He loves to talk with people. He's never quaint, he's abundantly clear. He's never cute, he's always compelling. And so Luke wants to show us this Jesus who demands a response and requires a reaction. So Luke 13. Luke 13 drops us into this place that theologians and Bible scholars often call Jesus's travel section. And so from, for Luke, like chapters 10 through chapter 19, Jesus is always moving around. He's always on the move. He moves from small towns and villages into Jerusalem and then back out into small towns. Um, he meets with people. He preaches in synagogues and he teaches to large groups. And all along the way, there's this perceptible feeling of a rising pressure, almost like this heightening whistle of like the Instapot on the counter. Like you just know something's about to happen. And these parables that he tells along the way, they also develop. They move from these sentimental metaphors to these like really personal indictments that have very personal consequences. And it's like Jesus, as he's moving through Luke, Jesus is forcing a decision, like either you're with me or you're against me. And there's no more fence riding as we progress through Luke. And so in the immediate context of Luke 13, Jesus has just had, uh, just completed three separate teachings. The first thing he did is he, he healed a woman who's been bleeding for 18 years. And he points to it and he says this, this is what I'm about then he does something else. He talks about a mustard seed, and he, he says a mustard seed is small, right? But you plant it, and birds from everywhere come and nest in its branches. He goes, that, that's what I'm about. And then he says, yeast, a little bit of yeast. It has a lot of power when you bury it in just a little bit of flour. And he says, that, that's what my kingdom is like. And so before we get to Luke 13 and the text this morning, here's what I want us to see. All three of those seemingly disconnected teachings actually set the stage for what's about to come. And if you're on the fringes of this, like, curious crowd, just kind of listening in, just trying to get it, trying to understand Jesus, if you're part of this wandering and wondering, loosely bound people, if that's you, you're starting to get the impression that this Jesus... Whoever he is, whatever he's doing, whatever he's preparing for, whatever he's starting, whatever he's hoping to build, this is not like anything you've ever seen before, like outcast women, mustard seeds, and yeast. Like, what is this kingdom of yours all about anyway? So with that, Luke 13, we're going to start in verse 22. Here's what Luke says. 
He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, this is a really helpful um, description from Luke. It's easy to imagine, right? That Jesus is on the move. He's in and out of these small towns and villages. He's picking up curious strangers as he goes. And as he moves, he's teaching. And as he's teaching, because of the way that he teaches, questions come up. It's kind of easy to imagine, like, whispered, like, what was that coming from the crowd? They turn to each other to try and fill in a detail that maybe they didn't quite catch. Maybe they're comparing notes, like, what does this parable have to do with this parable? Some are shaking their heads in, like, I can't quite get it, confusion. Others are maybe furrowing their brows in frustration. Until somebody, Luke doesn't tell us who, um, so it must not be that important, but somebody from the edge of this crowd just explodes and says, Lord, the honorary title, like Lord, suggests that this is probably somebody who respected Jesus or was becoming familiar with his teaching, um, maybe moving toward discipleship. They said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, that's an understandable question, um, given Jesus's recent teaching about the power of diminutive things, a woman that nobody sees, a mustard seed that no one thinks about, and yeast that no one notices. Like, Jesus, this kingdom of yours, is this something that only a few people are actually a part of? Because it kind of seems like you like the small things, Jesus. It doesn't really seem like you're interested in building a brand or pushing an agenda or like gaining a following. And so like, Jesus, one question for you, who's actually going to be saved? Who's in on this whole thing? That's a pretty direct question. um, And it's actually a very common question in Jesus's day. Any first century Jewish rabbi, which Jesus was, should expect to be asked that question. It's a very common question. And opinions ranged from inclusive to exclusive, depending on the rabbi. And so who will be saved was something of a, of a, of a spiritual litmus test, kind of like a signal issue. What you believe about this signals what you believe about a lot of stuff. And so maybe the person, the person who was asking Jesus hoped that he would relax the requirements for salvation. Because looking around at Jesus's life, he hangs out with some people who don't really seem to take their morality very seriously. He hangs out with prostitutes and he hangs out with sinners and and tax collectors. And so maybe Jesus is a theological liberal who's going to widen the requirements. Maybe the person was asking the opposite and maybe they're hoping Jesus is going to restrict the requirements for salvation because after all, he is a Jewish rabbi. And so he would probably take the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, very seriously. And so maybe he's a theological conservative. Or maybe for this person, maybe it was just a more personal question where they're going, gosh, if I ask Jesus, maybe he'll give me a free pass. And just to keep this maybe above the fold for us, maybe you've asked a similar question. Like, Lord, this, this salvation business, is this about like lighting a candle or, or like praying through some beads or walking an aisle or praying a prayer or filling out a form or raising a hand or like what? Like, I go to church, I try to raise my kids right, I'm a nice person, I don't commit adultery, I don't cheat on my taxes, I don't swear like too much. So like, Lord, where are, or where, where are we on this? Because I'm actually worried, Jesus, because when I hear the way you talk about discipleship, like I gotta leave my mother and my father to follow you. I've gotta be willing to die for you. You've said a lot of crazy stuff recently, Jesus. And so like, I'm not sure I'm there. This kingdom of yours, this can't be very big because there's not a lot of people that would be willing to do that stuff, Jesus. So where are we? 
The question is a very important question. It isn't theory, and it's not just an old question. Is there an afterlife? How do I get there? How do I make sure I'm on the right side of this thing? This isn't religious superstition. Salvation is clearly very important to Jesus. And so this anonymous listener turned questioner just pushes the question out in the middle of the crowd and says, here, Jesus, answer this. Talk about this. And here's the thing. We're going to see it in a second. Jesus doesn't answer him, at least not in the way that we would expect. Jesus doesn't take the bait, at least not in the way the crowd thought that he might. True to his style, especially in Luke, Jesus' answer takes the form of a parable. And it's a parable that's as jarring as it is compelling. And it starts with a command, one word. And I want to read the whole thing to you, and then we'll break it apart. And then we're going to talk about what this means, okay? So, Here's Jesus' answer. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from the east and the west, the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Okay, so there's a lot there. There's a command followed by three progressively troubling warnings, and then he caps the whole thing off with a summary in verse 30. So let's take Jesus' command first, then these three warnings, and then um, we'll take that, that one verse summary at the end. Then we'll talk about what it means for us. So Jesus comes out of the gate really strong in answer, a command, one word strive, he says. It's right at the top of verse 24. It's the most theologically important word in this entire text. Um, I don't always reference the original Greek, um, but when I do, it's really important. And so this word, strive, here's the Greek word for that. Agonizomai. Agonizomai. What English word does that sound like? Agony or agonize. It means in Greek to struggle, to contend with an enemy, to labor fervently. In secular Greek culture, it actually started with meaning the stadium or the place of contest. Paul uses this word when he writes in Colossians 1. He says, for this end I toil, struggling. He writes to to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope in the living God. He urges Timothy to fight the good fight. Same word. And at the end of of, uh, Paul's own life, when he appraises his ministry, he says, I have fought the good fight. Agonizomai means to struggle, to contend with everything that you've got, to focus your attention, to get it right. Now let's put this together. Jesus, how many people are going to be saved? And we would expect like a number or like an approximation or something. And his answer, agonize. And you're like, that's a really strange answer, Jesus. Like, that doesn't answer my question. I'm trying to track with you. Like, give me some clarity here. Help me out. Strive? Like, strive to do what? And then now Jesus starts to paint the picture. He imagines salvation being like a door. 
and that a narrow one, where he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. This sounds like what he said in Matthew 7. I'll read this to you just quickly. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And here's where Jesus' teaching instantly departs from any other rabbi. When asked the question, that very common question, who's going to be saved? Like, is it going to be few? Tell us, Rabbi Jesus. Some rabbis would respond, no, it's not few. It's all of God's people. Translation, all Jewish people. Some rabbis would answer that way. And the response from the crowd might be, all right, like he's nationalistic. Like we're all in. Good. Other rabbis, being more exclusive, would say, no, it is few, only those who rigorously keep the Old Testament law. Only the righteous Jewish people will be saved. And others from the crowd might go, all right, like he's a law guy. This is really good. But no rabbi, no rabbi would ever call his followers, point to himself and say, me. No rabbi would ever do that. Only those who go through me, the narrow gate, the narrow door, only those who go through me will get through. No rabbi talks that way. This is either lunacy or it's a lordship cult or some leadership thing, or he's right. Here's the point. There are lots of ways that lead to death, and there's only one way that leads to life. There are lots of roads that lead away from God. Only one road leads to God. There are more ways to miss salvation. Only one way to find salvation. And like in Matthew 7, the implication is Jesus here going, guys, I'm it. I am the narrow door. I am the narrow gate. And if there's one thing to agonize over, if there's one thing to get right, it's Jesus. Like we've been saying the last few weeks, you can be ambivalent about a lot of things. You cannot be ambivalent about Jesus. I don't care about your NCAA bracket. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what kind of car you drive. You have to make a decision about Jesus because ultimately he's the only one that matters. Why? And here's the first of these progressively jarring, troubling warnings. Warning number one, he says, why? For many, verse 24, he says, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Put simply, this narrow door named Jesus won't be open forever. And he just like leaves that there. Someday this won't happen. And you go, okay, well, maybe Jesus, what if I don't like that idea? Like, I like you, but what if I choose to not enter through the narrow door? I kind of like the idea of an all-inclusive Savior. Like, all roads kind of lead to God, right? And also, what's with the urgency, Jesus? Like, can we back off a little bit? Like, I'd like to kick this can down the road a little bit. Like, I'll deal with you someday, but I'll tell you what. For now, I'm going to live life on my terms, doing things my way, and I'll roll the dice and kind of hope for the best. Interesting idea. You ever heard that idea? I have, or variations of it, certainly somebody in Jesus' audience is wondering the same thing. So with barely enough space for a breath, Jesus imagines a time where the narrow door won't be open. Enter warning number two, verse 24. He says, many will seek to enter, will not be able. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. So all of a sudden with 
no heads up, no warning sign, the door is closed. And understandably, this prompts a response from those now outside the door, unable to get in. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, we taught, or you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, like nothing. This is probably the most striking element of this parable, and it's probably the hardest. It's horrifyingly easy to imagine a crowd of people pounding on a recently closed door saying, this can't be happening. No, this can't be. This isn't right. There's this desperate pleading sense in this image. And then Jesus supplies the reason for their confusion and desperation. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Like, Jesus, we shared a meal together. I thought we were close. You got me, Jesus. Like, I recognize you, Jesus. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but for now, here's the principle. Proximity to Jesus does not mean affection for Jesus. And that should sober us. Jesus is doing the hard work here of separating committed followers from sidelined fans. Proximity to Jesus does not mean affection for Jesus. And here's what strikes me. Like, guys, they recognize him. They are familiar with him. They ate and drank with him. He taught in their streets. Here's the thing. Recognizing Jesus doesn't mean you belong to him. Affiliating with Jesus doesn't mean you belong to him. Hanging out with Jesus doesn't mean you belong to him. Being near Jesus doesn't mean you belong to him. Hearing Jesus doesn't mean you belong to him. Even understanding Jesus doesn't mean that you belong to him. Verse 26 is absolutely heartbreaking. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. If we had to contextualize this, it might sound like this. Like, I went to church every Sunday in my life. I was in a community group. Like, I went on missions trips. I prayed with my kids. I sent money to missionaries. I voted the right way. Like, I did what I was supposed to. I jumped through the hoops. We did the things. The idea that you could be sympathetic to the cause of Christ and never know the heart of Christ, that you could pray in Jesus' name and never know the person of Jesus, that you could give to the work of Jesus and still not know him. That idea is horrifyingly sobering. For salvation to have taken place, there must be something more. And like, just hear my heart on this. Here's Here's what worries me. Is I... I know a lot of Christians who love Christianity more than Christ. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And so please hear me. Like outward affiliation for Jesus never saves anybody. But inward transformation by Jesus, that's a different story altogether. Outward affiliation with Jesus doesn't change anybody. But inward transformation by Jesus, hmm, so maybe there are some on the crowd or in the crowd or on the edges that are going, okay, well, like, how bad could it be? All right, so I'm out. All right, this is all just like some kind of made-up fairy tale, just some boogeyman to scare kids to behave, right? Like, ACDC, Highway to Hell, like, my friends are going to be there too, right? I bought that record back in the day. Warning number three, verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the people in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Three quick details that we need to see and then we're going to talk about what this means. First detail, what's with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? 
So this image of anguish is the exact opposite of the promise of peace and joy and rest for which you have been designed. This is the opposite of what God wants for you. And we don't get a lot of detail because we shouldn't need a lot of detail. We shouldn't want to explore, oh, maybe it's tolerable. Like, no, this is the opposite. This is everything for which you were not created. And without Christ, it's unavoidable. But with Christ, it is avoidable. What's with the second detail, though? He references Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is basically summarizing all of Jewish history and theology. Like, these are the patriarchs, the bedrock of of biblical faith. These are our, like, faith heroes from way long ago. And every first century Jew expected, or at least wanted, to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets at this messianic banquet in the kingdom of God. It was this big party that all centered around this Messiah who would one day come and save God's people and restore this relationship. This is referenced all throughout the Old Testament. It's even in extra biblical Jewish literature. This is the one hope that God's people have had across time. That Even though sufferings may come, even though there are despised people that have been almost wiped out countless times by needless genocides ever since like the birth of their nation, that they're holding on to this hope that one day there will be a Messiah and one day there will be a banquet and one day we will be together one day. And here's Jesus saying, oh, there is a banquet and it's for me, which is an amazing statement for him to make. The only way you get a seat at that table is through me. This isn't an ethnic thing. This isn't a racial thing. This is all about Jesus. And then he heightens the contrast with this third detail, not just by saying who's outside, but by saying who's inside. People coming from the east and the west and the north and the south all to recline at the table of God. What's with the compass points? Well, this is a reference to the global expanse of the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done. This is the result of missions. This is why we partner with organizations who translate God's word into unwritten languages for unreached people groups. This is the multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual, beautiful bride of Christ. And quick side note, it's why racism has no place in the church because it stifles worship of Almighty God and it shrinks the scope of Christ's sufficiency, which is what leads Jesus to conclude in verse 30. Here's his summary cap. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So if that's not just his mic drop sermon, you just go, golly. So that's the text. What now? What are we supposed to do with this? What does this slowly shutting door, weeping, gnashing teeth, banquet table. What does all this ancient metaphor have to do with the 2022 world? Enough theory, let's talk about you. Three truths that I need you to hear. Truth number one, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Guys, this is the gospel. Like, let's remember the word gospel means good news. And so while this parable about like open and shut doors and feasts with guests and unguests. While this parable has this ominous, sober and somber tone, first and foremost, this is the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that anyone can be saved, that this door for now is wide open. And Christians should remember that in a bad news world, we are good news people. We've been changed by good news. We believe the good news and so we live the good news. Um, There's probably only a handful of books that I could say that I've read um, outside of Scripture that have just changed the way I I look at things. 
Um, and one of those books uh, that changed the way that I view grace is a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by a guy named Brennan Manning. And if you've never read it, I recommend it. Um, I want to read a paragraph to you. It's a long one, so get comfortable. But I think this really gets to the idea that anyone can be saved in Christ. Um, as he reflects on the scopes of the anyones that he has met, here's what he says. He says, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb dressed in white robes, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen, molested by his father and now selling his body on the street, who, as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of the unknown God he heard about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understand the gospel of grace. Like, I love that. Like, let's never, ever, ever lose sight of this oddly shaped, but perfectly shaped narrow door named Jesus. Hear me on this. If it's true, if it's true that through the narrow door of Christ that anyone can be saved, First, there's two things I think that result out of this. We should be profoundly thankful that only by the grace of God that we could be counted in that number. That should well up in thankfulness and worship that God was patient enough to wait for you and me to get in that door. If God is gracious at all, he's eager to be gracious to all. This is like so connected with what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart. But then also, if anyone can be saved, and if we really believe that, beyond being profoundly thankful for that, also, 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 we need to not place barriers to salvation that Christ himself has not placed. If there's a narrow door, it is narrow enough. It need not be narrower like, is this a big or a small group? Doesn't matter. Are these my kind of people or those kind of people? Doesn't matter. What about their ethnicity? What about their voting record? Doesn't matter. One thing matters, Christ and Christ alone. I gotta imagine, like, how would it change your view of people if we saw them as invited dinner guests who just needed their invitation delivered and you have their invitation? How would that change your view of people? This eschatological banquet table at the end of time is probably bigger than you imagine. And because the honest truth is that just as you might be surprised that somebody else is there, somebody else might be surprised that you're there. But that's principle number one. In Christ, anyone can be saved. But truth number two, flip the coin over, anyone can be saved, but not everyone will be. And here's this thing that I feel like we've got to square with. As plain as I see it, earthly choices have eternal consequences. 
I feel like this is probably the most jarring reality of this parable because it's the most countercultural message that you could probably send out there to say that, no, there is a door. There is an outside and there is an inside. And Jesus gets to determine who that is. The reason that's so jarring is because most of us have grown up in a culture that is steeped in what we would call moral relativism. And all that means is that in 2022 America, truth, especially spiritual truth, sounds something like this. Tell me if you've ever heard something like this before. If it works for you, great. Just don't, fo- don't force it on me. Like, if being a Christian is fine, but that's just your truth. You believe what you believe. I'll believe what I believe. Just don't make this weird. And what I love about this, or at least I find compelling about Jesus, is how willing Jesus seems to be to make this weird. Like, obviously weird, uncomfortably weird, unavoidably weird, abundantly weird, like narrow gates, gnashing teeth. This is not just poetic language that Jesus is using here. This isn't just some manipulative tactic to oppress the simple-minded. Like there is a literal heaven and a literal hell, at least if you want to believe Jesus. If Jesus is right, and I believe that he is, we cannot wave our hand dismissively or roll our eyes sarcastically or sigh condescendingly. Jesus is not interested in inviting moral people on the outside of the door to become more moral. Morality has nothing to do with it. What Jesus is doing here is he's inviting the spent people, the broken people, the deeply flawed people, the depraved people, the immoral people, lost people, frustrated, burnt out, stuck in my sin people. He invites those people, this busted up and broken family that he calls friends. He wants to invite those people inside the door into himself to enjoy him forever. We really need to make sure that we see this rightly. We don't have the luxury of one foot in, one foot out. Either Jesus is 100% right or he's 100% crazy. So please hear me before we move on to, to truth number three is it's a narrow door. Christ and Christ alone. It's a thick door. Like Once it's closed, it's closed. But for now, it's an open door. And so one word for you, strive. Just to pull it right from this text, make sure you know where you stand with Jesus. Put off every other decision you have to make until you've made this one. Talk to whoever you have to talk to. Set up whatever coffee conversation you have to set up. Let whatever uncomfortability, embarrassment, or even agony, to borrow the word from the text, come out. This morning, if you're listening on and watching online, you're in some way connected to the ministry of the North Canton Chapel. And I don't know if I've met you in person or not. I don't know where you're living. I don't know what the rest of your life is like. But if I could just be your pastor for just a little bit through the lens of a camera, your computer or your phone, just hear my heart on this. There is nothing I want for you more than to enjoy the sufficiency of Christ and to know that you belong to him and that he belongs to you. So that's truth number one. Anybody can be saved. Truth number two, not everybody will be. Truth number three, Jesus makes all the difference. Now here's where all this points because we said this is like a mic drop kind of a moment for Jesus where he's definitely said some pretty catalytic, caustic things. Here's where all this points. At the end of all things in Revelation chapter 5, we're treated to this picture of this beautiful everyone who's in Christ bride. And here's what John, who was another disciple of Jesus, records. He has this vision. Here's what he says. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, 
to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, that's the cross, and by your blood you ransomed for God or ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, what a picture, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. Don't miss this. Jesus is worthy of worship because of who he bought and how completely he bought them. There is no wrong in your life that he can't make right. There is no pit too deep he can't pull you out of. There's no past too dark that he can't redeem. And there's no present too confused that he won't make right. And then almost at the last verses in the Bible, like almost the last paragraph, Jesus speaks and here's what he says. The spirit and the bride say, come and the one, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now here's what this means for you. You are not too lost. You are not too late. You are invited. You're not too lost. You are not too late. You are invited. And so, yes, the door is narrow, but it's open. And it was made for you. We're going to close with a song um, just called All I Have is Christ. And it's just kind of become one of these songs for me in recent years and for a number of us that has just become very precious as we think about how our world can be up and down. And, and persecutions may come and go and the world gets topsy-turvy and, and the psalmist would say the mountains quake. But we don't have to worry if we are in Christ. Come what may, if we have Christ, that's all that we really, really need. And so let me pray. Lord, we do just say thank you so much for your provision in Christ, that you made a door that we could strive to walk through And so, Lord, if there's anybody listening who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that this might be the day where they say, you know what, I'm tired of riding the fence. I'm tired of not knowing. I need to reach out. Lord, maybe today could be the day of salvation where they cross from death to life, where they have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed forever, Lord. I know that that is your hope for them. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you work on their heart in these moments. Father, we love you and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.